<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm coming to you today from Washington D.C. Jimmy Jeremy Goldcorn is at home chilling like a Nash villain over in the Volunteer State. Hey man, <laughs> how are you doing? We just had this most awesome thunder shower here. And huge pine branches crashed down on my vehicle,、uh, which was quite exciting. So oh, yeah, wow, it's all fun here in Tennessee. Thunderstorms. Yeah, I, I reminds me a bit of Johannesburg. They're really nice. The first day of 2016 marked the official end of China's one-child policy, one of the most controversial, draconian approaches to population management in human history. The one-child policy was introduced in 1978 in response to fears of overpopulation resulting, it said, from Mao's reckless encouragement of fecundity. The、uh, policy change was seen as the end of an era, even though, of course, state-enforced family planning has not actually ended. The new rules mandate a maximum still of two children and only. For married couples, but now China faces major demographic challenges resulting from the one-child policy,、uh, including, of course, labor shortages and working-age people who are going to have to carry very heavy pension burdens as the population ages, and of course, a very perilously skewed gender ratio. Our guest today is an author who had the exquisitely good timing to publish a book about the policy at almost exactly the same time that everything changed. So we are delighted to welcome Mei Fong. Author of One Child and former resident of Beijing, where we all hung out,、uh, she wrote for the Wall Street Journal and indeed won a Pulitzer Prize while there. May it's great to see you. Oh, about time you had me on the show, guys! I know,、nice、seriously. I know. What's up with that? No, she's <laughs> Sorry, been in the studio hanging out with us before. Just never. We had to wait until your book was done. But okay, we tried. Right? We kept. <laughs> yeah,、trying. I know. Time and distance. Yeah, time and distance. Anyway, let's make up for lost time. Uh, now that we have closed the distance, so so May, can we begin with a dummy's guide、uh, to the one-child policy?、Um, okay. When and why did it begin? What were the rules?、Uh, who was allowed、uh, exemption from the rules? And anything else somebody approaching it for the first time should know. Okay. Well, I'm going to be a little didactic here and say that. The one-child policy hasn't really ended because the name itself is really a, a kind of a misnomer.、Um, even though we call it the one-child policy because it sounds, you know,、uh, sexy, that was the most striking part of the policy.、Um, it was really a name that was used to describe a set of、um, policies,、uh, a set of rules regarding the、uh, issue of family planning in China that started about thirty-something years ago. I, I date it back as nineteen eighty, and even though. Last year,、uh, they began. China announced a, a move to a nationwide two-child policy. It, you know, there are still rules and regulations, which is why I and a bunch of you know other very.、Um 
didactic people say it's not the end of the policy yet you still get fines if you break or exceed your quota of, of children but he, what it is was basically about a full third of all households were limited to a one strict one child only policy the rest of the country had there were all sorts of exceptions to the rule that enabled you to have perhaps two or more children um, if you if, belong to a minority yeah if you're a minority or if you had a hazardous job like if you were a coal miner or a fisherman or if, for example, you lived in a rural area and your first child was a girl, um, this was a nod to the fact that people recognize a lot of people want sons. So there were a lot of exceptions to the rule. So, of course, you would have the, the you know some person outside trying to say, what do you mean by the one-child policy? Uh, I haven't got a friend. He's got like three kids. What are you talking about? And so that was part of the reason why people didn't quite understand it. You know, it's sort of like the U.S. tax code. I think some people use that as an explanation. Tax code, a lot of exemptions here and there. But by and large, it's not a free for all you can't have as many children as you want and when you break the rules you may be subject to a series of penalties mm-hmm. uh, ranging from everything from fines to perhaps confiscation of property to um, in some cases if you're very unlucky uh, issues of forced abortion um, you could lose your job too if you work for a government linked organization so they, you know there were some very real penalties to it well, what's a better name for it then what should we be calling it um, well, I think, I, I mean, I thought I, I wrestled around the other day. Do I say one and a half child policy? Because that were <laughs> But then it doesn't sound so euphonious. So I think, you know, for better or worse, it's one of those names that you use, you know. I mean, right. in China, they don't call it one child policy. And it says, um, you know, they call it um, family planning policy or something. It's, it's not as explicit. Yeah, so they don't say uh, not, not that many people use that, you know, explicit term. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the inspiration for the book. I mean, you took a reporting trip to Sichuan after the 2008 Wenchuan earthquake, mm-hmm. uh, where something like 70,000 people died. And you suddenly found yourself after that trip, surprisingly pregnant. I remember when you and Andrew, who's standing here with a camera, uh, were, were trying. I remember mm-hmm. we were all hanging out back then. I think Andrew and I kept going to tech conferences together and sharing <laughs> rooms and we would commiserate. But um, then suddenly you're pregnant. Yep. And and you had met a lot of people who had actually just lost their one and only child and didn't have the Yeah, so the story begins in my book as in a sort of a personal journey that I take the readers on in a sense. So in 2008 I was in Beijing and my main task was actually to report on the run up to the Olympics, all the political, social changes and financial changes, economical changes that were going on as China prepared for the world, you know, its biggest coming out party. Now, um, in May, there was, at the time when the earthquake happened, I was actually uh, trying to sneak into Burma. I was trying to get into Burma because uh, there was a natural disaster there, a cyclone right, just cyclone, happened. Oh, right, right. And um, my uh, editors uh, had been trying to send people to into Burma, but Burma wasn't letting in any foreign journalists. They thought maybe because I had a Malaysian passport, an, an ASEAN country, that they could try. But I was turned away at the border. And so I was flying back to Beijing when the earthquake happened. And so when I landed in Beijing and I turned on my BlackBerry, I was like, holy f***. What is going on? Because um, all these, all my report, uh, reporter friends were all making a beeline for Chengdu. I felt like I missed that story. This is the thing about journalists. You always want to run to the places where people are running away from. And I, I was, I was kind of mad. I felt I missed that story. I, I was too right. late. The earthquake had happened already. So I went back to the office. I wrote some stories. And then I started thinking, well, there must be another way to come back at it. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of people from Sichuan working in all other parts of China. 
So what would it be like for these families as they try and get back home? What if I tried to follow a family back home or some people and, and, and go with them, write the story out that way? So I went to the um, train station. I found a group of construction workers, male and female, and they were all trying to get back home. They hadn't heard any news from um, their families in a very small village. And it was a very long journey. It took us three days because, you know, all the rails weren't working. A lot of stuff wasn't working. Um, they hiked. We took boats. We rode motorcycles at some point. Uh, it was very long. It was uncomfortable. But it was also very sad because, you know, as the j journey progressed, more and more people discovered, oh, I got a phone call. My child's dead. Oh, oh no. I got a phone call. My mother's dead. Oh, my God. My, my, my entire home's demolished. And it was only much later after the trip that I, I found out that that area where the earthquake happened had actually been an experimental test project for the one-child policy before they launched it nationwide. They weren't very sure that uh, such a, a tough policy would work. So they enforced it in certain areas with very tough measures, uh, arguably, to see if that could work. And this was one of the areas. So it was a huge irony that, you know, 30-something years later, not only did a lot of people lose their children, they lost their only child. And I only realized that in a subsequent trip when I was reporting, when I found a lot of the parents who, whose children had died were rushing back to do a reverse vasectomies, reverse the sterilization process that they had to have under the one-child policy because that's part of the rule. Wow. After you've had your quarter of kids, you have to get your tubes tied or you have to get sterilized. And while all this was going on, I also discovered that I'm pregnant. And it was very unexpected. Um, you know, my husband and I have been trying for some time. We wanted kids. I was 36, 37 and sort of feeling like that window was closing. So this was a very sort of unexpected blessing. And, you know, at the same time, you're doing all these stories about people who've lost their child, lost their only child. They're showing you the pictures. You're looking at dead bodies the whole time. So this was a, a very personal point for me at that point. And it was also made me aware of how painful it is to lose a child or lose a hope of a child. You know, I just had a taste of it. These were people who raised their kids for, you know, several years and, you know, it was so painful. And so this was all a melange of emotion that I was very, actually very hesitant to write about in a book because, you know, um, in your book, you're as a journalist, you're trained to distance yourself. You don't matter to the story. It's the story that matters. Why, what, what, what is your story going to do of it? Uh, but I found that when you write stories, the most interesting part sometimes is when you take the, the reader on a personal journey. Sure. And I think a lot of people can sort of understand what it means to think about the dream of parent. Every, everybody has that kind of a question mark in a, at some point in their life. Um, should I be a parent? Am I ready to be a parent? What are the costs involved in being a parent? And I think this was made most explicit by setting out the Sichuan earthquake. That's fascinating. You said that the area in Wenchuan had been a test zone. No, sure for, fun, for, yeah. I mean, so... That's uh, interesting also because Sichuan, of course, was where the household responsibility system was tested for the first time, too. Uh, who were the people who actually implemented the policy for the first time? I, mean, I think that, that probably in, in the common understanding, it was an entirely top-down kind of thing that, that I, I suppose in our imagining, it, it 
issued forth from the lips of Deng Xiaoping himself. But If I may add to Kaiser's question, May, because it was an interesting time in China, I mean, 1978 to 1980, mm-hmm. uh, Deng Xiaoping had not yet completely become the paramount leader he was to become. In some ways, it was sort of an interregnum. And I mean, the one-child policy is not one of those policies that is explicitly associated with Deng, is it, in the, in the common imagination? I mean, we think of reform and opening up. So, I mean, it, it feels to me like there's this group of shadowy ghosts who made, uh, m- made up the policy and enforced it. Who were they? Well, I think it was a. I think it was very clear, and this was mixed up a little bit with Mao too, because family planning, the idea of reigning in China's huge population, had been an issue that had been de- debated even prior to Mao's death. You know, it was a back and forth, and so um, there were a group of people. And but the problem was one of the reasons was Mao was sort of very erratic in his approach to family plan. At one point, he was sort of like more people, better, uh, and then there were some points where he had made. Contradictory, uh, contradictory remarks to that effect. But it was very clear, I think, after Mao's death that the whole group of leadership was very for the idea of um, reigning in the population, even mm-hmm. before Mao's death. You know, uh, prior to the one-child population policy, there, there had been a 10-year uh, sort of a population planning policy that was less coercive in place already. This was called the later longer and fewer campaign. Been going on for 10 years, encourage people to get married later, have fewer kids, and space them longer apart. So that had already been sort of going on in fits and starts, and it's actually very successful at that point. A lot of demographers say that that was actually the, the point at period where China's population growth fell the most sharply. Uh, oh, average family size went from six kids to three. So there's a very strong case to be made that if they had continued in that vain and not gone all DEFCON 1 with the one-child policy that, you know, China's uh, population growth rate would have slowed without some of these other uh, bad effects that we see now, such as the gender imbalance or the huge issues with um, elder support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I also ask a follow-up to that? I, you know, I think it was 1968 when a book called The Population Bomb was published by a couple of, a Stanford University professor, Paul, Paul Ehrlich, yes. Ehrlich, and his wife, right? And that book certainly was the background for my fears as a young, environmentally conscious person about overpopulation on the earth. Do, do you think that book had any, any effect on, on what was going on in China? Well, I think, you know, the, the idea of this the world population raging out of control, the world running out of resources was very much an idea that was in vogue in the 1960s and 70s, not just China, lots of other parts. As you mentioned, the population bomb was one. The Club of Rome. Yeah, uh, and the Club of Rome. Um, But there was actually one very specific connection. And in my book, I talk about it. There was a Dutch mathematician who had actually written a paper where he, uh, it was a mathematical hypothesis of, is this island, what would the population population growth need to be controlled to not exceed uh, its resources. Now, that paper was actually cited by uh, Song, uh, Song Jian, who is one of the, considered one of the architects of the one-child policy in China. And, you know, I talked to this Dutch mathematician who actually, actually met him at that point. He said, oh, this guy was very excited by my paper. And, you know, he was very, you know, he did not know at the time that this uh, man, Song Jian, was actually involved very much in China's family planning or anything. Of that. So, Song Jian was actually, and this is the interesting part about the China's one-child policy that many people don't know about, that it was uh, designed by rocket scientists. 
Uh, and you're like, what? What rocket scientists, missile scientists? What have they got to do with babies and all that? But this goes back to the Cultural Revolution. At the time, the Cultural Revolution, you know what happened to in, intelligentsia and uh, academics. So they were all, you know, you know, suffered greatly, um, had no kind of political capital. The only kind of um, group of academics were who were left people. were military right. scientists. And so they were the ones who had this kind of, a, uh, you know, the necessary um, political capital, the equipment, and even, you know, the kind of political bravery that came into the brave thinking that went into uh, attacking the ideas of uh, population growth, you know. And so, so... Uh, a lot of population scholars and historians have written about this. And now there's some discussion as to uh, whether or not these rocket scientists were just implementation, you know, they were the tools of the leadership. Mm -hmm. They were just, you know, not necessarily the big movers and shakers. There's some discussion on that front. But it was very clear that Song Jian um, was one of the people who drew up the policy. He used uh, the calculations that calculated that basically, even though our population growth rate is falling, it is not going to meet the targets the leadership once at this current rate, and therefore we need to move to a one child per family household uh, right away. And so, and Song Jian's an interesting history, which comes back to the States, um, actually. He was actually the protege of uh, Chen Xuexun, um, yeah. who was the one of the founders of JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab here. That's and right, who he, repatriated to China in nineteen. Yeah, he left here in disgust after the McCarthy era um, uh, um, witch hunts. And he was the founder of China's missile system, uh, missile defense system. And he, um, I'm friends he, with his granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> and he also uh, went on to mentor uh, a lot of um, brilliant young scientists. And sure. Song Jian was, was one of them. He was of Theodore von Karman. I'm sorry. He was a student of Theodore von Karman. Uh, was, uh, uh, yeah. So you know, but, so you see the long line there. So yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, you may want so to. So the upshot the, is that the one-child policy was in fact rocket science. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it was. <laughs> it was basically conceived as okay. We uh, like we want to achieve this uh, aim. Uh, what is the trajectory? The aim, and so it went. So it went and looked at it, and one of the I think the big criticisms level against the policy was there was no input from social scientists. There weren't no input from political scientists economists, um, any of the people who could have sort of, you know, interjected some real world behavioral um, thoughts. I mean, people like the Club of Rome, the Population Bomb, all these people were actually advocating ideas that were never put into real world practice. Only China did and India to some extent with their forced sterilization policies under Indira Gandhi. And so and one of the things they didn't take into account was the idea that uh, women's fertility can fall and change very sharply, and it did over the you know because of all these things with feminism and be, uh, and, and, and modernization, urbanization, all, uh, women's education. Um, none of this was taken into account. None of this people were not willing to bring it up. I did talk about one obscure uh, Shanxi uh, economist called Liang Zhongtang, who was brave enough to speak about it at his inception. He did say it was a bad idea, mm. but they kind of ignored him. And so that's why I call him the Cassandra of China's one-child policy, because mm -hmm. a lot of the things he predicted did come to pass. And in a way, it's not rocket science, right? You think about it. All right, <laughs> if you tell people that you can only limit yourself to one child per family, and you know that China is a country that is very culturally values boys, then yes, at some point you are going to end up with a deficit probably of more boys than girls. Uh, it's not rocket science to figure that out. Nor and is it rocket science to understand that, that this was going to involve horrific coercion, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, so I mean, how strictly was the, the policy enforced? 
Well, this is the part. It was patchy. There were parts of it that were places where, you know, and this is part of the reason why it's so poorly understood even within China because we have friends, especially people in urban areas, they're no big deal. I, I have two or three kids. I just pay the fine. It's okay. And then there are some people and then we hear stories like Feng Jianmei who, were, you know, who had a forced abortion in 2012. You know, right. that wasn't so long ago. No, no, no. So, not you know, ago. China's a big place. So a lot of it was dependent on where you lived and um, how lucky you were, how connected you were. But... For a large part of the places where, like places like Sichuan, for example, which is a very populous, um, you know, uh, province, it was very strictly um, enforced. And one of the chapters I talked to, um, a lot of people who are enforcers. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, how can you do this job? How can you stand to do a job like this? And one of the things they kept telling me again and again was they had to adhere to the birth quotas. It was considered a, v- a very top priority, not just for family planners, but even your garden variety officials didn't matter how well you did in other areas of your work if you if your area exceeded the birth quota then you would get what they call the yi piao which mm-hmm. is what they call the one vote feeder that's a big black mark on your thing you can lose your job you can be fined you can get censured it was considered so sacrosanct as a major major thing that you had to do and this would you know so this was a big stick to drive them to use the big stick against their neighbors their 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 uh, you know, and be, be be really harsh to um, the people under them. And this is all coming from the National uh, Health and Family Planning Commission, right? So I, I talked to uh, garden level uh, variety family plants, and I even talked to somebody who was a vice president. He's retired now, and um, one of the things he said was, you know, it, it was it was it could have been a better policy. You know, I say that now, but it's too late. <laughs> right. So how how I mean it's 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 fairly clear in a general sense how you evaluate the the policy, uh, but did it at least do part of what it was supposed to do? I mean, did it make China in any sense stronger or better or richer? Well, I mean, I think that you know you're, you've probably encountered many people, and I, I think that Jeremy, you'd probably fall into this category, and I, I know I certainly do. Who in the past, and I emphasize that it's in the past. I mean, that's you know pre Mei Fong held kind of, you know, ambivalent or, or even positive views about the policy. You know, they saw it as a sensible course of action for a developing country with an unmanageably large population. I mean, your book obviously argues against this, but was there anything Well, good? I started off with that kind of a mindset too. You know, okay. I moved to China in the mid-2000s. It was very clear to me that it was in an upswing. It was also very clear to me that it was in right? You just try yeah. taking the subway at rush hour. And so it, it, in that sense, it made, you know, uh, it seemed to me as uh, I had that kind of a vague thinking at the back of my mind that it was kind of a necessary evil. But, you know, I, I wasn't thinking too deep. And once I started delving into it, and it wasn't too difficult a, a range when you really think about it, is the problem is we tend to think of uh, population control and the one-child policy as one and the same, you know, without really parsing it out. This is partly because the uh Chinese Communist Party made it a, a very strong. We have to do this. This is the only way to save China. This is the only way going forward. This is how we could, the only way we could advance. But it isn't really one of the same thing. There's a very long line between, um, you know, teaching women birth control and making uh, contraceptives available to sanctioning forced abortions. And the problem is we don't look around, and many of us, we don't tend to look around and see the many countries that did do that approach and did have uh, declining populations and turbocharged the economy without having to go through, you know, the extremes of the one-child policy. What are some comparable cases? South Korea, Taiwan, and I would be my argue in the point of whether Taiwan is or not, but, you know, Taiwan is um, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, 
lots of many, many most countries did because you know if you look at most developing countries, the population growth trend is downwards. You know, um, you know that's where it is. What this is what happens when you have urbanization, when you send women to college, when you make contraception available, when you have modern technology. You know, family sizes shrunk drastically. And none of this had to happen without uh, ex- extreme a policy as the one-child policy. Mm-hmm. That was the issue. So, you know, I mean, people ask, like, you know, what if, what if China hadn't done it? Could they have reined in the population? And there were actually a, a couple of demographers I, I talked to who did do those projection studies. You know, they worked out, okay, this is a population trend uh, in China. And here are the population trends in comparable countries. And, you know, and, and they worked out that China's population would probably have fallen, maybe not so drastically. I think the figure that um, the Chinese Communist Party used for a long time was we averted 400 million births. 400 million is very significant. Um, the uh, demographers uh, sort of calculated that if they, without the one-child policy, probably the population would have fallen maybe by um, 200 million, maybe half of that. So that's still significant, but then you know between the the numbers between the two is the size of Brazil, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that so is that's the size not of small. But uh. at the same time, you also have to ask yourself. You know, it's you would not have, for example, a major gender imbalance issue, which you do have now in China, which is the most uh, the, the the biggest in all world. China has thirty million surplus bachelors. That's the size of Canada. Imagine Canadian size, you know, population of men, um, you know, with no hope of building any brides. Also, at the same time, you have a huge issue with an aging population. That same big cohort of people that went to work in the factories in China in the six uh, in the in the 80s when China was opening up, that, that same b- birth boom is going to age and live longer. That's nothing to do with the one-child policy. It's simply a function of... Um, May, I, I think uh, we'd like to actually ask you specifically about mm. the gender imbalance and the aging problem a little bit later. But yeah. could, I, could, could I, before that, ask mm-hmm. uh, a question uh, mm-hmm. about a theory that I've heard uh, a number of times? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, um, the question is this. How significant is the threat of massive layoffs and job losses in the National Health and Family Planning Commission as ah. a factor in the one-child policy and also in its replacement by a two-child policy rather than a complete liberalization of birth control enforcement. Well, this is one of the theories or explanations as to why the one-child po- uh, policy, even though it was clear that some of these flaws were becoming apparent even as much as 10 or 15 years ago, why did was it allowed to continue on for so long? Why wasn't it you know, changed or modified or wrapped up much more quicker than it is to this point where it's almost too late to avert some of these um, issues? And one of the answers was because the, the, the birth planning police enforcing department has grown so huge, so entrenched, it's such a major source of revenue, especially at the small account levels, that to even take that down would involve so much work and so much strife and, and so much political discontent. And do you subscribe uh, to this idea? I believe so, because if you ask, and I've gone to, you know, the village levels of the way up, you know, okay, so you have just, you know, the, the National State Family Planning Commission, which is just the major organizer, but then at every level, um, down below that, at every province Provincial and county, and, county and then you also have the major um, um, companies, state-owned companies, which have sure. their own, you know, uh, family planning and forces, and it works out all the way down. And you know, I think they just said it was just like half a million just for the national state planning authorities, and then if you go all the way down, um, it's millions and millions of people who derive some form of employment. This has become so baked into the business of normal governance that it's very 
had to strip it apart. I mean, uh, for a lot of the smaller provinces, that's your birth uh, taxes, your birth quarter um, revenues are, are your only source of revenue that you can have free and clear, especially after they did agricultural uh, land tax reform, uh, which meant that a lot of money had to go straight to the central planning authority. So there was less um, leeway for them to use that money. So this was a great source of revenue. You can take it, you can eat it, you can keep it at local levels. It goes towards maintaining your offices and paying all the salaries. How do you suddenly strip it all down in, in, without putting anything in place? Very good question. I, I, I think I, I buy the argument for, I mean, institutions have a lot of inertia built into them. Yeah, no, so it's a bureaucratic inertia. Um, you, you mentioned two of the, the major uh, negative consequences of this policy, and mm-hmm. those were, of course, the gender imbalance mm-hmm. and then the problem of the aging population and pension supports. But let's talk about this, this gender imbalance problem first. Okay. Uh, th- we, we talk about this guangguer a situation where we have you know large numbers of of men who mm-hmm. do not have prospects of actually finding uh, w- women who they, they might marry and guanguer uh, meaning bare branches bare branches, bare branches yes. right mm-hmm. describing uh, and what uh, what's the origin of that term maybe we can just start there um, Guanggong, um, I think it's been used before because there have been parts of China's Chinese history where they have had an imbalance more men than women, right. um, you know. But I don't think it's ever been as marked as it, as it is now. And the, you know, the sex, sex distribution at birth is something like one sixteen to one hundred now. Yeah. Right? Okay. So let's talk numbers and be a bit wonky for a moment here. So on average in the world, um, nature makes about 107 boys for 100 girls. Nature makes a few more boys than girls because more boys tend to kill themselves at an early age. Yeah, violent, beastly things that you are. <laughs> um, that's just a natural norm. Um, in, say, India, a place where they have also gender preference for boys, but they don't have a family uh, one-child policy, you have about, on average, 110 boys born for 100 girls. In China, where you have both the gender preference Preference and the one-child policy, um, you have on average 116 boys born from. That's the biggest in the world, right. and in some provinces is as high as 100 and almost 140 boys born for 100 Good girls. Good Lord, which which provinces would those um, be? I think uh, Anhui was one of them, but I uh, you know wouldn't you know call it off the top of my head. But I do remember that there, that was the highest when they jumped at 138 boys to 100 Good girls. Good Lord. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So this is, um, you know, so this this is very very marked. So the one child policy didn't create a preference for boys, but you it added it exacerbated an sure, existing sure. problem. And the restrictions on sex selective abortion, on even I- identifying the gender of a of a of a fetus. Has that had any kind of an impact? I don't think that that has as much as effect as the change in time urbanization, um, more of these social campaigns to value daughters over sons, mm-hmm. and, and just modernization. You know, if you don't live in a farm and you live in a city, your daughter can earn as much as your son, especially if she's educated and a white-collar worker. So these uh, preferences have erased over time. There is some belief, the indication that some of these most extreme sex selection numbers have peaked and are coming down. So in time... Probably China may, parts of China may become like South Korea, where the gender imbalance thing has sort of squared off a little bit. But in the meantime... By the meantime, you have 30 million men, uh, more men than women. There's a population the size of Canada. And unless China imports 30 million women, I don't know where they're going to come from, uh, these men are going to spend a lifetime without women. You look Um, at certain polygamous mammalian species, let's take elephants, for example... 
uh, because of the polygamous mating system and the generally even spread of sex at, at birth, you have these bachelor groups of male elephants that are sort of ostracized from the main herd and are, are considered extremely dangerous. Is this is this what we're talking about here? Are we talking well, yeah, about so this is the part activity? where you go from theory into an actual what you can see. So there are a lot of sociologists. I mean, obviously a society that has more heavily balanced men versus women, not, they do not tend to be stave, stable societies. Violence against women is more rife. Now, what form it manifests as in China, it's not entirely clear. There are some sociologists um, who wrote, Andrew Denbour, for example, they wrote this book called Bear Branches. Uh, they hypothesized that uh, a more male China equals a more warlike China, that, uh, that it's going to be much more muscular on the world stage. Now, then of course, they, they feel heartened by all these recent uh, things in the South Seas, for example. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily a very useful predictor. There are whole sorts of reasons why China is much more muscular on the world stage. I don't think this uh, gender imbalance is necessarily, I mean, it's not very helpful either it's, yeah. you know, as a predictor. However, there are uh, uh, economists who have done studies on areas in China where they have a much higher uh, sex imbalance versus others. And there is a, uh, I think the gender imbalance does contribute, I think, about six percentage points in crime rates. So that, you know, after they stripped and, and, and counted in for other factors, areas where there are more men than women in China are also areas with much higher crime rates. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty straightforward. Very, yeah, very not surprising at all. What about this idea that uh, women can afford now to be more selective in their mates? Uh, and and that might be in some way empowering to women. Yeah, I mean that was one of the theories they have. Well, you know, if there are fewer women than men, by law of supply and demand and economics, are women more valued? Do they have hold the upper hand? But if you look at the state, the China's China is still a very patriarchal society. Absolutely, there are no sure. women in the Politburo. Very few women in the top echelons, and so. When you see these kind of societies, um, that's there appears to be, I think, a backlash, um, an attempt to sort of scale back some of the gains of uh, feminism has made in the last fifty years. You know, some of it was um, like Sheng Nu. You know, with um, with you, I'm sure you've had Lita Hong Fincher come yeah, on to talk about yeah. the whole issue of leftover women. And one of the other things I found in my book was also there's a rise in these so-called Confucian uh, seminars. This is not to be confused with the Confucian Institute, um, which is the overseas arm. These are local blue-collar type seminars which sort of advocate a sort of a back to traditional values approach that is getting quite popular with blue-collar workers. And so they tell you, and so you have speakers who will tell you things like, a man should be more uh, powerful than a woman. You cannot be too powerful as a woman, otherwise you will get cancer and all your woman parts will fall off. <laughs> you know, you know. so it's... it's <laughs> I know, it that, sounds... That, that sounds like some arguments being made in the United States by yeah, opponents of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds Trump's ridiculous America, if yeah. you think about it that way, but if you jump back, you look at the States, for example, after World War II, when men were coming back from the, uh, the war and they wanted the jobs in the factories again, there was this big pushback to get women back in into their so-called traditional sphere, back in their household, back in, so, uh, and especially because um, manufacturers and companies found they could sell more uh, to new households being formed, the sunbeams, the cars, the madman era. This is the era where Betty Friedan came in. This is the era of the feminine mystique. There was a, a backlash against the gains of feminism. I think there's something going on in China that's going to be similar to that. Women may be of more value, but if they cannot control the value themselves, then they're going to be chattels to some extent. And we do see that now because there's a rise in sex trafficking. Um, there's also uh, a rise in polyandry, I'm told. 
yeah, well, you know, that was after, you know, I think, I suspect that's more uh, as a result of um, consumerism in China, a private enterprise. You know, polyandry, uh, having an urnai, having girlfriends in the side, that's always been going on for a long time because that's, a lot of Chinese men are dirty dogs and the whole. <laughs> no, that, that, that's polygamy. I'm talking about, you know, women taking multiple husbands. Oh, polyandry. Oh, yes. Is it Tibetan? Oh, rubbish. I really okay. don't think so. Come on. What woman's going to go and take on an extra lot of housework and all that to get, get like two or three husbands? I re- you know, these are all, polyandry has only ever been practiced in the poor societies where women have no rights and they are shared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Several brothers they sharing They really are women. essentially chattel. Yeah. Right? Uh, Jeremy, I asked about, uh, about the gender impact. Let's talk about aging. So yeah, uh, that yeah. was the other big problem resulting from the one-child policy that uh, you discuss in your book. What is the what is the problem? How is it connected with okay. uh, the family planning policy? I actually see this as possibly the um, strongest or the most painful after effect of the one-child policy. So let's, let's talk numbers, right? By 2050, one in four Chinese will be a retiree. And um, in terms of actual numbers, that's more people than all of Europe, right? So if you if senior retirees in China would have formed their own nation, they would be the world's third most populous nation. You would have China, it's India, and then senior China would be the third largest nation if you would go by it. So these are huge numbers. Now, this has nothing to do with the one-child policy. It's simply a factor of that large cohort of people we talked about, that big birth boom that alarmed China's uh, uh, authorities in the, 60s, yeah. in the 1670s, who grew up and went to work in the factories in the 80s and thereby created Huawei, uh, China as the factory of the world, cheap manufacturing, cheap labor, who are now aging and living longer, which is a factor of technology and all the things we have. They are living, uh, the average, I think, age rate in China in 1949 was about 45 years old. Now it's more like 70, 80. So all these people are living longer. Nothing to do with the one-child policy, but the support factor, the number of workers per average to that retiree population is shrunk, and that is because of the one-child policy. So I think China's ratio now for um, dependency ratio, so average number, there are about five workers to support one retiree now. In a, you know twenty something years, it's going to jump down to one and a half workers to support one retiree. From five workers to support to five one, to one and, a half. one and a half. So that's huge. That that's that's a lot. And so you, that's the big economic factor. Then you shrink it down to your family intimate levels. You have one child maybe in many families, and then it's the four two one. That's what they call it, right? Four adults, uh, two parents, one child, and that one child, the oldest of the one child generation is now thirty five. You know, at some point, your parents are going to age. You're going to have to deal with two, uh, your parents and your grandparents, and you are the social support. Um, and China hasn't really developed. They are, and they have done a lot with their yibao and, uh, and all these uh, universal health care and all these things, but it's not enough. It's not enough for a population this size. So that you still have to depend on a family, but you've also shrunk the family. So what you got? Right. So, I mean, how disastrous is this going to be? How does this play out? Well, this is the part that was the hardest part in the book to write about because it hasn't yet happened. So what I did was I take the reader with me to a hospice in Yunnan, in Kunming. So there aren't that many hospices in China because the whole idea of sending the old to die in a hospice is still very, sending the old to die in a nursing home is still very new. But when you have these huge numbers and you don't have, and you have smaller families, it's going to happen. And But right now, China consistently ranks 
lowest, one of the lowest in the developed countries in the Economist Intelligence Unit has a, they have a death index, what they call the quality of dying index. Which country do you want to die in, you know, which is the most comfortable to die in? And they work in all these indices like uh, number of hospices, quality of hospices, um, nursing homes, so on and so forth. China gets one of the lowest ratings. And so I go to a hospital, and this is one of the better ones. It's really good. Uh, it's very spoken of very highly. It's been written up in Harvard Business School Studies. And it is depressing. It's sad. And I meet this woman who is, uh, she's keeping, uh, her mother is in the hospice. She's dying. And she has had, um, she's, she's pregnant with a second child. And she this is before the two-child policy. She says, I have to have a second child because I know when it's my turn to die, I don't want all of this to fall on my first child. I want her to have a sibling so that they can share these burdens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's look at a, another problem, May, mm-hmm. that's connected in some way to the one-child policy. And it's, it's an aspect of China that can be shocking to foreigners, particularly to Americans, I think, which mm-hmm. is how easy it is to get an abortion in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, abortion services are advertised with, adverti- uh, with flyers distributed near universities, offering student discounts. Many young Chinese women lack any kind of sex education and mm. uh, use abortion almost as a form of birth control. Yes. And it's not unusual for young Chinese women to have had more than one abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I think the th- average is over four mm. in a lifetime. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, is this a result of the one-child policy? And are things changing as the internet makes more information about sex and birth control available? And, you know, will the relaxation of the policy affect this, do you think? Well, this is a problem, right? I think on one hand, China was so very tight on controlling one aspect of reproduction, one of the, you know, which is, you know, uh, childbirth. But on the other hand, there's almost no sex education taught in schools. <laughs> Very few people know about it. And so, as you say, um, abortion is used as a form of uh, birth control. And here's the thing. I mean, from my viewpoint, I am firmly in the pro-choice camp. But at the same time, I also believe that um, abortion is not something to be taken lightly. It can be a particularly difficult decision. That said, I do believe it's a woman's choice. But I also believe that birth, you know, you should be taught about uh, birth control so you don't have to arrive too much, hopefully, at that point where you're like, oops. Uh, and that is a big, big problem and a failing in Chinese society. And I think this kind of a denaturalized approach towards childbearing and childrearing occurs a lot in China. Like, for example, one of the things I've always uh, struck by was the low rates of breastfeeding in China currently. I think it's one of the lowest rates. And this is after you have the issue with melamine-tainted milk. milk. You would think that more people would breastfeed, but they don't. I think it was like 17% or something like that. And this is partly because, um, you know, uh, the the industry has made it this great sort of... um, pitch to them that, oh, this is the more scientific approach, the more healthy, the more high-level approach to raise a healthy child. But also it's because institutionally, they don't allow it. I remember I was, when I had my kids and I was making a trip to Beijing and I was pumping breast milk and I arrived at the door of Traders Hotel, which is a four-star hotel owned by Shangri-La. And I said, okay, I've got all this breast milk. Can I put it in your freezer? And they said, no. We have a Beijing ordinance that says that you can't put strange things in our freezer. I said, I cannot possibly be in 2010 the first working mother to have made this request. They said, yes, you are. It's astonishing. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, But I think that there's a whole approach to it contraception, child-bearing, and child-bearing in China that needs a bit of a rethink because of this process, including the idea of abortion. It's used too much. And so one of the stories I had in a book was... I I interviewed this guy who in Sichuan 
after he was he his his teenage daughter had died in the Sichuan earthquake. He had gone to a clinic three weeks after her death to get his sterilization uh, procedure reversed because he was 50 and he was desperate to have a child. Life is very sad for rural China. You have no children. And I remember talking to the clinic people and said, oh, do you do a lot of these things normally? And they said, no, no, no. We just do the normal infertility procedures for people who are facing that. I said, okay, do you face a lot of that? And he says, yes, because one of the things we have a problem with, a lot of people come to us and they've had multiple abortions and some of them have done botched jobs, so they scarred the tube, so they have trouble conceiving after that. That's our normal bread and butter, not reversing sterilizations mm-hmm. from the one-child policy. One last issue that we should talk about is the offspring of the one-child policy, the children themselves, Xiao the, 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 uh, the infamous uh, little emperors. I, I remember I've talked to a lot of people about this, and uh, one good friend of ours, uh, Mary Kay Magistad, she said something I thought was quite pithy and quite smart. She said, uh, for every entitled little brat that I've met, I've also met another one-child product who is really kind of independent and empowered. So equal parts entitled and empowered. Well, where do you come down on this? I mean, do you, what do you think the effect has been on the one child generation and how they are in the world? Yeah, well, I remember this was one of the more tough ones, I remember, because, you know, I looked at both the social science aspect of it, all these studies that have been done, and a, a huge variety of them were very squishy. They were not very conclusive. Well, some said there weren't many differences between single children and children with siblings. Some said there were differences. Some said there were bad differences. Some said there were good differences. So it was very inconclusive. There was one study that was very interesting, and this was the reason was it was done by Australian economists. And it was interesting because it didn't measure siblings, uh, children with siblings versus children with no siblings. What it did was it measured cohorts: one born post nineteen eighty, the one child cohort, and one born before the one-child policy in the 1970s. And then they had them play games instead of doing behavioral surveys. Mm-hmm. They had them play games to measure your entrepreneurship, your risk-taking, um, your ability to cooperate. Uh, cooperate and others. And what they found was there was a very marked difference in the one-child generation. They were much less optimistic. They were much less altruistic. Uh, they were also uh, more risk-averse. Now, but, you know, that may be, there may be exogenous factors in that too. Because, exactly. You know, one study does not make a, a whole summer, right? right? You know, in that sense. But it wasn't interesting because the methodology of that was very different from some of the other ones. So I would like to have seen more of these studies sure. than elsewhere. But my my theory is this, and you can't extrapolate across a whole nation. You're going to find some entitled ones. You're going to find some not entitled ones. What's really clear, though, those little emperors are all going to turn to little slaves. The oldest of them are in their 30s now. So you're going to see that wheel turning. They're not going to be little kids cosseted and pampered by adults, but they are going to be the adult that has to cosset and pamper six aging people. You know, China already has like more than 25% of the world's Parkinson's sufferers in a matter of 20-something years. That's going to jump to 60 over percent. Hello. You know, and you can see all the similar statistics for dementia and, and so on and so forth. You know, all the diseases of old age. All this is going to fall on the shoulders of that little emperor turned little slave. <laughs> that's the way I see it anyway. That, Irrespective that, I think, of whether he's empowered or entitled. In, right? Empowered, entitled, yeah, whatever. I, mean, I, I roll my eyes, of course, at mm-hmm. any sweeping generalization, just as, as I do anytime time I see an article that says millennials are this or that, right? But yeah. Uh, May, can I ask you, I mean, how, uh, you know, predictions are, are, are horrible to make, but let me mm. ask you to make one. How will things change with the uh, re- relaxation of the policy? Do you expect to see a significant uptick in childbirths and a return to more rapid population growth? Or are there any other effects that you think uh, we might see? 
I would be very surprised to see a significant uptick in childbirth rates unless the CCP puts in a whole other package of other things, you know, um, you know, cheaper childcare, subsidized schooling, all these other things that would come that would encourage people to have larger families. If you follow the trend of all other countries with declining populations that have tried desperately to raise the birth rates, most of them have failed to do so because the pattern of women being educated, having children later in life or not having children at all and having smaller families looks set to continue unless they do something like what France did, which is to spend a lot of money on subsidized health care and, and all these big things. But these are all very expensive things to spend. There. And China is not a developed country on a per capita basis. It doesn't have that kind of money. And at the same time, where is it going to spend the money? Don't forget, they also have this huge aging population that they need to spend money on too. So there's going to be a lot of demands on the social services side. And the question is, where are they going to allocate that? So to my answer, I don't see a big uptake, especially not in the uptake for urban women, which is the one category that they do want to have mm-hmm. children. They want educated women to have kids so you can raise an educated population. And that is not likely to happen. You haven't seen it happen in most other parts of the world, in Japan, despite in lots of incentives. In um, and so I don't see that happening. I do see probably the gender issue leaving itself over time that there is more of a preference now for girls that over time there probably this startling statistic this this huge imbalance will uh, leave in itself but that you know but the course is set for the next 20 to 25 years all these men are suddenly going to get magic brides uh, spring out of the earth unless they you know buy them from Cambodia or Vietnam or North Korea which is happening to some degree and, mm-hmm. and with some coercion too but so, not 30 million of them no you're not going to get 30 million and one of the things I talk about in a book is a, is, is a visit I make to a sex factory um, no not a sex factory it's a sex, sex doll, doll factory, factory right, yeah. in Dongguan they used to make office furniture but then with the manufacturing costs rising, uh, they weren't making any profit. So they thought, hmm, what do we do to make something that's high value and high demand? So the answer was sex dolls, huge exoskeleton sex dolls that can be, you can custom make them. You want AA size breasts or DD size breasts or real hair, no hair, blonde hair, whatever you want. This is, you know, and it's, it's such a denatured approach towards love and romance and marriage. I can't think that it's very good for the, so I think there will be more uh, sort of a gender wars, if you might call it that, and strife between the two sides of sexes, which is partly an effect of modernization, but exacerbated by the the deficit in women. And so I think that will continue too for the next decade or so. So um, I don't paint a very pretty picture. No, you, know, you don't. Do I? <laughs> um, but um, that's kind of because I think at the end of the day, the one-child policy was not a good idea. And some of these effects are going to last for 20, 25 years. Even if everybody turns around tomorrow and it probably has a lot of kids. Well, it takes time to grow little kids into workers. So this is all going to stay in place for the next 20 years at least. One generation. It's been great to have you on the show. I am just uh, sorry that, Jeremy, you weren't able to be here in D.C. to join because this has been great. Indeed. So once again, the book is One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. And it is available wherever fine books are sold. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Um, and that's at SubChina News, not at SubChina for the moment. And it's, uh, we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off with some recommendations? 
Okay, I've got one. It's a review or an article a few years old by one of the most energetic writers and journalists uh, living in Beijing, which is Ian Johnson. He writes about a huge range of subjects. But mostly religion. An unfortunate obsession with religion, but he also (laughs) writes, you know, literary criticism. He writes about dissidents. He writes about business people even, I think. Uh, Politics. uh, And religious dissidents. Uh, so this is uh, he posted it to his Facebook page on the anniversary uh, 50th anniversary of the suicide of the writer uh, Lao She who committed suicide during the Cultural Revolution mm. in Beijing. It's an article that looks at Lao She's suicide and also uh, gives you a little bit of a flavor of one of his books which is Cat Country uh, and the article is titled When the Cats Rule by Ian Johnson. It's on the New York uh, Review of Books website. That's an excellent recommendation. May, what do you have for us? Well, mine's not really China-specific, but I've just been reading a lot of works by Indian medical uh, doctors who write for on the side and do it brilliantly. I'm so jealous of them. So, this, um, yeah, I know they save lives and write, you know, ma- amazing stuff on the side. I'm like, oh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, you're gonna say? Yes, yeah, Siddhartha Mukherjee. I was just reading Jean. Oh, um, that's it's good. Brilliant. I've actually recommended it on the show before, but go for it. Yeah. And um, the other one is Atul Gawande. He wrote this book called "On Dying in America: What It's Like to Die in America." Oh, wow. And you know, I was reading it because I was thinking, what is like to die in China and one of the things he said was um, if you want to avoid the nursing home in America your chances of avoiding it will be dependent on how many children you have in particular how many daughters you have which which basically says you're fucked if you're in China um, pardon my language. And then the third person I read was Paul Kalanithi, who wrote this book called When Breath Becomes Air. He was a neurosurgeon who was dying of cancer, and he chronicled his death as he was approaching death. And it, w- it becomes this beautiful, breathtaking meditation on life. As I highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> breathtaking. You really had the. Wow. Yeah. I, I, what is with these brilliant Indian uh, MDs who, are, who happen to be just like beautiful wordsmiths on the side. I'm like, yeah, I'll just, you know, save somebody's life and then toss off a bestseller on the side and win the National Book Award. I I hate these people. (laughs) Emperor of Maladies, another great one by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Great book recommendations. Thanks. Uh, I am going to recommend something just utterly frivolous. It's, It's a show on Amazon called Brain Dead. I don't know if anyone has seen this, but the the premise is these bugs from outer space land on an asteroid and begin <laughs> infecting people on Capitol Hill. I mean, I, I say this because you know I'm I'm here, you know, just a th- stone's throw from the Washington Monument right now, uh, and they cause them to take on extreme left or right positions. Uh, it, it's actually a good, I think, a good explanation for what's actually happening in American politics. It's a today. documentary, is it? Yeah, it's a documentary. <laughs> actually, it's the same. It's, it's the it's the same husband and wife writer team who brought us the Good Wife. Uh, it's kind of brilliant, and and one of the things I enjoy most about it is that uh, each episode has a different opening song. It's this sort of a, a singer songwriter folk guy sort of encapsulating what's happened before in a in a very very funny way, and. Yeah, I think it's it's high comedy. It's I'm I'm enjoying enjoying it immensely. Looking forward to it. I think it also airs on CBS on Monday nights. Sorry, what's that you said? Sorry, I gotta go brain feed the dead. bug in my brain really quick now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey Jeremy, thanks, man. It was good to hear your voice, and uh, I'll see you again soon, right? Yes, indeed. Thank you and- so much, May. That was a blast. I, you know, as Kaiser said, it's just a shame I wasn't able to join you in person.
Yep. Okay. Well, we'll we'll have a drink in memory of you, Jeremy. Yeah. And so, <laughs> me and I were at a barbecue or earlier. <laughs> me and I were at a barbecue earlier with a bunch of our our friends, uh, our journalist friends, and we were talking about her her uh, getting ready to plan out the next book. And I'm sure that we will hear more on that soon. I hope. Bugs in a brain. Bugs in a brain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo, that's me, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, to Amadeo Tumululu, to Soraya Darabi from Sup China, and to Andrew Lee for shooting some video while we were talking here. Uh, so drop us an email. We love to hear from you at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care.